Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Maria Judice, a popular speaker and coach, unlocking potential in executives and the people they lead. She is also the co-author of her latest book, Changemakers, How Leaders Can Design Change in an Insanely Complex World. Welcome to the show, Maria. I am so happy to be here, Douglas. I'm thrilled as well. And I got to say, I was totally honored and beside myself when Sonny Brown told me that she was reviewing a book and I was mentioned in it. And I was like, wow, (laughs) someone noticed the book. So that's super cool. And then, you know, getting a chance to look over the book and get excited about it coming out. And, you know, by the time listeners hear this, it'll be out. And so super thrilled to be with you and talk about it today. Yeah, I'm so passionate about this topic, and so I can't wait to talk to you about it. Excellent. Well, before we get into the book and all of the details of change, let's hear a little bit about how you got your start. How did you even get to this place of writing books and helping design leaders become awesome? Mm, Yeah. Well, you know, I'm almost 60 years old, so that could be the podcast all to itself, just to let you know. But I'll try to synthesize it as much as possible. So first of all, I grew up in New York City. I was born in Brooklyn and uh, lived in Staten Island. And uh, as far as I could remember, I wanted to be a famous artist. I really, at a very young age, I started painting. I was started painting when I was like eight years old. And I have an uncle who's uh, in certain circles is a well-known painter. His name is Frank Frazetta. And I just had this dream that I was going to be a famous artist. So then I took the path and went to art school. And while I was in art school, I was studying painting plus sculpture plus photography. And then I started taking graphic design classes. But I I really struggled with the concept and the notion of graphic design when I was in art school because it just felt so formulaic. It felt like, okay, I got to pick a good font. I got to pick a good picture add a lot of white space, slap it together, call it a day, right? There was just, it just felt like really empty to me. And when I was in my senior year of college, I was taking a class and there was a guest speaker named Richard Saul Werman. And first of all, he didn't look anything like what a typical designer looked like at the time. And he walked in And he looked at our class of young designers and he said something to the effect of, you are all full of shit. And it was like mic drop for me. It was like, who is this man? I'm in love with him. He said something to the effect that 
Design isn't about you. It isn't about decoration. Design is about helping people make sense of the world. That was that lightning bolt moment for me mm. where I, I really understood that design was about being in service to others. And that idea of using your creative capabilities to be in service to others has really been the through line throughout my entire professional career. It really has been my guiding North Star with everything that I've, I've done in life. And so I worked for him right out of school. I worked for him in uh, New York designing guidebooks. And while I was working for him in New York, he got the gig to redesign the Pacific Bell Yellow Pages, which is in California. And so I thought, oh, I could go out to California for a couple of months. And, you know, like it's, it was sort of like a road trip kind of feeling. And I thought that the project was really interesting because think about it. You remember having yellow pages mm-hmm. growing up? Oh, yeah. I don't think they, they don't exist anymore. But so a lot of the young people who are listening right now are going to be like, what is this? But it was the only thing that connected people and communities together at the time. It was this book that every human being gets delivered once a year on their doorstep that contains information about your community and the people who live in that community. And I, I kind of consider the Yellow Pages sort of the first version of the internet. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a fascinating problem to solve. Like, how do you reimagine something that everybody has? The constraints are enormous, but the benefits can be incredible. I say I accidentally moved to California to work on the Yellow Pages. And this was late 80s. And then shortly thereafter, suddenly Macintosh computers appeared on everybody's desktop. And basically, it was like, okay, go figure this out. (laughs) And so it was like one of those seminal moments where everybody was like a pioneer. It's like, what is this tool? And how does it connect and relate to my business, um, what I do for a living? And it was just this amazing pioneering time because nobody had the context or the clear understanding. It was like a democratic playing field of really trying to discover how to use PageMaker and Illustrator and Photoshop eventually, 1.0 versions, and using like just two fonts and just really rudimentary software to create beautiful design work. And that was the first sort of like, oh, wow, I really love this intersection between design and technology. And I was really fascinated about the promise of technology. And then I left, I'm going to jump ahead. I left the understanding business. That's what it was called. Went traveling for a couple of months, came back, started freelancing. I just basically kept getting busier and busier. So I started hiring people. So the next thing you know, I was leading an organization. And then Eventually, that turned into Hot Studio. 15, 20 years later, it was a large interaction design studio that had everybody from business strategists to engineers. And in 2013, I sold that company to Facebook when I turned 50 years old, which was one of the largest acquisitions that was done to date. 
of a design studio to a technology company. And I worked at Facebook for two years. I learned a lot. It was hard. And then shortly thereafter, I went to Autodesk to be VP of design, you know, really helping the company become more human centered in its approach and methodologies. So that's sort of like the quick cliff notes of a lot of years. I want to come back to something that you shared in the beginning around when you were visited at school and had this epiphany that design was about being in service of others. Yeah. And I think that's a really pure way to describe what so many miss about the term human-centered design. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think people hear it and they think that it's tools and techniques Mm -hmm. and ways of showing up, but they miss the underlying driver, which is like, really, we need to be in service of others. And that Mm -hmm. could be customers or it could be like coworkers. It could be other people in the organization, partners. And so I I don't know. I just want to underscore how profoundly important that is. People miss it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, yeah. And even like, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, fast forward to my like current life where I'm an executive leadership coach. You can see the through line of my career, you know, like first I was designing guidebooks, the yellow pages, right? Talk about like creating something that's in service to everybody. Then creating a design studio, building a culture, working with and for clients to create things that, you know, are going to help their customers, supporting employees and making sure that they have an excellent quality of life and that they're motivated to continue to, you know, make great things in the world. And then, you know, my corporate experiences. And then now as a coach, it's like, almost like a pure purpose, which is to help motivate and bring out the best in individuals and groups. So it's like really this underlying purpose in life was to, to kind of be in service to others. Oh, and I'll just leave this here. I'm also an applied shamanic counselor. <laughs> so not only do I help people from the outside, but I can help them from the inside as well. But the through line is about being in service. Yeah. And, you know, firm believer that it's really impossible to help an organization, help a team, help others if we haven't taken care of ourselves first. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, put on your oxygen mask first. Also, as I'm hearing the story, it makes me think about how you've lived so much change. Mm -hmm. Learning the formulaic approach that was distilled down and generalized and almost commoditized, and then being shown another path that can be in service to others, you know, and then getting into, you know, building a large agency and selling it and then, you know, moving into enterprise and leadership and now coaching. So lots of transitions for you personally. How much does that influence you as you think about change and helping others synthesize their own change? Mm, That's such a great point. And I love what you said about transitions because that's what it all is, right? Mm. And transitions are scary. Change is scary, right? So depending on the context, it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. And all of that can activate our fear response and our grief response. So there's a lot of neuroscience theory and brain science theory around transitions and change that we can talk about. But I think for me personally, I always feel like I step into the light. Mm. Like I'm very curious, right? I'm very curious and I'm very much try to say, aware of those 
moments in life that can become lightning rods to go somewhere different, right? I'm a yes and person. So because I'm so curious and I'm really obsessed with continuous learning, if I trust the universe and I trust my intuition, it has led me in places that I had never anticipated. Who would think that a girl from Staten Island, New York would become a shaman? That is like, I'm shocked that I'm, I, I even gone down that path myself, you know, but I wound up going down that path because I was following my curiosity. I was following, um, I was looking for, I, I wouldn't say looking. I was just, just curious about, oh, how does X connect to Y? And how does Y get you to Z? And when I coach people so much about our ego and our careers, we keep thinking that we have to follow a ladder, right? Mm. You start out as a junior designer, you move to a senior designer, then you have to do this path. You have to say, oh, I have to become a manager because otherwise I'm not going to make the money or I can't, I'm not going to go up the ladder. So a lot of people go into management, even though it's not really what they're passionate about doing. And then they jump into director and then they VP and CDO if you're really lucky and you're at that point in your career. The, the problem with that, it's sort of like this linear expectation of growth that we have. And it's like the word should mm. becomes really important in our lives. You know, oh, I should be doing this. I should be making this much money. I should have this job title. And, you know, people go up the ladder and, and you can get there and you can be very successful and you could be very happy, but you could also be very unhappy and still have everything and the money and, and the title, right? And the problem with that is people lose sight of what's really important to them and what they're naturally inclined to do, what their natural sense of purpose could be mm. in life. And if you can kind of get back to basics and help people figure out what is the thing that lights them up, what is the thing that you do where you completely lose track of time that doesn't feel like work? Why are you on this planet? Why do you think you were put on this planet? For what purpose in life? Like these kind of real probing questions. And if you put that in the center of a mind map and you start there and you, you know, you go out, you know, classic mind map exercise, right? You go, it's like a ray of sunshine. You, you, you start with what's in the center and then it leads you to these other connections. If you start looking at it that way, you might surprise yourself that you might be happier in a completely different job doing something completely different that brings you joy. And so that really excites me to help people find that. And to help them overcome their inner critic voice that is always telling them that they should be doing something else mm. based on their position in life. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just really powerful stuff. But it, it, all of the things that I'm telling you right now are really hard to do, right? We have a very strong inner critic that can dictate or send us down pathways in life that aren't necessarily the best pathways for us. You know, I think there's a couple of forces at play, right? There's the inner critic, plus there's just this like flow of like uh, momentum 
that's happening. There's like expectations within side organizations and industries and people expect you to do things. Like I bet there's numerous consultants out there that are on the speaking circuit and hate speaking and they're just doing it because they, because yeah. they, they're supposed they to should. do it or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. This is what I should be doing right now. One hundred percent. You know, it's like I'm following the playbook. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was thinking about your use of the word rays of sun emanating from the center of this mind map that you're kind of describing to us. And it brings me back to your comment earlier about you stepping into the light. And so I'm mm. sure it's not a coincidence that you use that <laughs> metaphor twice, right? And I think that curiosity is so key. And it's one of the things that we often are looking to kind of imbibe in, in our trainings and, you know, when, when we're bringing people together to, to try to pull that curiosity out and how can we be appreciative of what's been successful? Because it's so easy to, with all the change that's happening and all the loss and sacrifice associated with change, it's so easy to just get like, you know, worn down. And so there's a lot of stuff we can't control, but what we can control is the moment and what yeah. we're seeing and, and the path, you know, that what light do we lean into? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us, including me, have we have lived in the future, right? We're always thinking about the future and where we should be. Again, should comes back, right? That a lot of times we have to kind of like really get present and stay in the moment and see what's there. Mm. And think that has something that I have been really working hard on doing for myself over the last couple of years. It's so hard for me to stay in the present, but I, I work on it every day. I meditate every day to force myself to start in the present moment. But you talked about curiosity. And one of the things I I have talked about, starting with my third book, Rise of the DEO, I talked about that designers have these inherent superpowers, these incredible superpowers that when they apply it to the business context, they can make incredible things happen in the world, right? And it's not just designers, it's people who embrace their own creativity, right? Because we're all born creative. So, you know, when I say anybody could be a designer in sort of the abstract context, we could all think like designers, right? And when we think about these superpowers that designers have, being a natural change agent, the whole definition of design is to change something, right? So it's in us. Then there's risk-taking, being intuitive and analytical, being a systems thinker, being incredibly people-centered and finally getting shit done, right? These are things that we are trained to do as designers. And when we, when you take those out, and curiosity is part of that, right? It's part of the creativity process. When we take out those qualities and we apply them into business, you can make incredible things happen, not only for you know, products, but the people that you serve and the people that you work with. And one of the classic mistakes, talking about change makers, I think one of the classic mistakes we tend to make when we are applying design strategy to change making is designers are so focused on serving the customer that we often forget that we are working with collaborators and stakeholders. Right. And so 
because we are inherently, we love to change. We will, we will run into the light. Like you said, like I said, you run into the light because you love to see change happen. We often forget about how do we become compassionate and empathetic to our coworkers and stakeholders who may or may not believe in the change that you believe in. This is like the classic mistake that change makers make and designers make in general. Absolutely. I think there's two things there. One is you know, the classic, you know, as a CTO and having to, you know, coach developers to work better with designers and designers to work better with developers, you know, early in my career, the classic example is where the designer is so obsessed with delivering value to the customer that the laws of physics just are irrelevant. They're like, you know, it doesn't matter that it is incapable of doing this. Like, we have to serve the customer in this way. And I think that's an example of what you're talking about, right? Like being empathetic to the fact that the developers have constraints they have to work with. And it's not because they're trying to be difficult. I mean, some are. (laughs) But uh, just Mm -hmm. understanding that there's sacrifice that people are having to make and change. And there's work that people have to do. And just honoring that and um, just being attuned to it. It's really important. Well, you said, and even if the developer who's your coworker is difficult, this is one of the, the things that I've learned from doing this book, Changemakers, is if they're difficult, you have to ask yourself, why are they being difficult? What are they afraid of? And this is one of the classic mistakes I made when I was the VP of of design at Autodesk. Like I, when I was the VP of design at Autodesk, I was so passionate and so fired up to change a 35-year-old engineering-led culture into becoming a human-centered design company, right? That was like, that was the thing that I was so like driven to do. And I was so passionate and I had all these initiatives, right? But I I didn't pay attention enough to people who did not believe in the same ideology that I believed in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't pay attention to the people in organizations that have been there for years and years and years who are tired of people like me coming in and saying, we're going to change everything, right? I didn't pay attention to stakeholders who had competing priorities So I made all of these mistakes. And again, I'm a senior person. I have been in the design industry for about 40 years, you know, (laughs) and 35 years. I don't want to give my, make myself too old, but like in my, you know, it's been a long run. I have seen a lot. I have lots of wisdom. I have lots of experience. And yet I went into an organization and made these rookie mistakes not being compassionate or empathetic mm. around the conditions to which I'm working in with the coworkers and the stakeholders in the entire environment. And I think it's so ironic, right? Because I started off telling you, you know, design is being about in service to others, but we make that classic mistake that we think, oh, we are serving our customers. Mm-hmm. 100%. And so when we talk about change, in a lot of ways, change starts with us. Change starts with our own self-realization and actualization of how we show up. And when we show up, are we showing up where people, are we showing up as our best selves or are we showing up as our worst selves, right? 
if we're showing up as, in, as our best selves, we're going to be open-minded and curious and empathetic and open to other people's ideas. If we show up threatened, we're going to be an entirely different person. When we show up threatened, people mirror those emotions. And so they become threatened. So it's like these two threatening people trying to get things done instead of these two people who are like open to what's possible. So there's all of these things that I've learned along the way from my experiences that I put into this new book that I'm working on. You know, it reminds me of one of our maxims, which is inquiry over advocacy. And Mm -hmm. when folks are in a mode, because, you know, clearly empathy is a word that gets thrown around a lot, right? And it's easy to say, let's be empathetic with our coworkers. But if we just take that one maxim and apply it to our coworkers, and let's go in with an inquiry mindset versus a advocacy. Let's not just advocate for what the customer needs. Let's inquire about what it means to do some of the things that we're considering that the customer might, might need. And then that way we learn. We start to understand some of the constraints. Mm-hmm. And that way we can find a solution that's more integrated. Because mm-hmm. advocacy tends to be an either-or kind of scenario. And we get into this like contentious conversation versus a, uh, an expansive one. That's absolutely right. And it's, it's one of my tricks, actually, that I've learned also, is when you feel threatened, start asking questions, yeah. right? So <laughs> there's this, uh, there was this story in, in the book from uh, Sarah Brooks, who uh, worked at the Department of Veteran Affairs, right? She was a Obama's Presidential Innovation Fellow, and she found herself at the VA Again, like, you know, we're all these like gung-ho young people who are going to go in and change these big organizations, right? And she did all the things you're supposed to do. Like she was getting ready for a big presentation. She, you know, shared the presentation ahead of time. Like, you know, she went into a meeting thinking that, you know, people were on board with whatever she was going to present, right? You know, she followed all the steps that you do, right? So she walks into this meeting and uh, she gets sabotaged. And I think we all have this story in our careers, you know, where you actually go into a presentation thinking that it's going to be fine. And you suddenly there's somebody in the room who is going to just tear you apart, right? And she called it the pinata party, which I absolutely love because, yeah, I've been there where you go into a presentation thinking there's, this isn't going to be contentious. I've done all the logical things. How could anybody not see the objective logic that I use to apply and get to my conclusions, right? And you suddenly get attacked. And then what do you do, right? We tend to like, our response is fight, flight, or freeze, right? That we get threatened like animals. And it's one of those three things. And again, our worst self shows up And then we try to like defend ourselves in some context. And I had a coworker at Autodesk who gave me this incredible advice. When you are in a meeting like that, when you are in a pinata party, the best thing you can do is take a breath and start asking questions. And when you ask questions, you will diffuse the temperature in the room. So that is a trick you get curious. Yeah, it validates them. If you try to explain yourself, it sends a signal that you're invalidating what they have to say. 
Yeah. Like, it's like, you know, when you're threatened and like I said, there's, there's mirror neurons that go on when you show up energetically threatened, people pick up that and then they get threatened Mm. and then their fight flight or freeze response will happen. And so everybody shuts down and you can't, you can't make progress because you're in a closed mindset. You're in a protection frame of mind. Wow. Yeah. That's a super powerful technique. And, you know, unfortunately, people don't have a lot of opportunities to practice it, right? Because those moments come at you when you least expect them. Yeah. So that is one of those tricks, which is if you find yourself scared or threatened and you're in a situation like that, ask a question. So I want to come back to how you got to the place of writing the book. It's always fascinating to me to hear what... uh, uh, you know, what was that needle that broke the camel's back kind of thing, right? Like, I think I might have mixed my metaphors, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, what was that origin story of the book? Yeah, that's we were we were using the metaphor ray of light. Yes. So how could you attach that metaphor to this question? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was the ray of light that uh, kind of seeded the book? <laughs> that sense of realization. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So I was telling you, I was a VP of design at Autodesk. I was in my view, my job was to, again, change this culture to become much more human centered, right? And for people to start thinking about designing products from a people first perspective, rather than an engineering first perspective, right? So that was my charge. This is why I was so attracted to joining Autodesk. And I loved this job so much. I loved my boss, Amar Hans-Paul, and he was like the chief, he was a chief product officer and he reported directly to Carl Bass, who was the CEO, another man that I deeply admire as a CEO. And as a matter of fact, I featured Carl in my book, Rise of the DEO. So I deeply admired Carl's create, he was, you know, an engineer by training, but he was deeply creative and deeply curious, right? And so I really, you know, we kind of, I felt like we were all in alignment when it came to like how we could, you know, imbue human-centered design within uh, this company culture. And I was crushing it. I was so committed to this job. I got to work with 400 designers worldwide. And, you know, we were standing up initiatives we started design ops, which wasn't a thing back then. I called it like how to activate a design community. We talked about quality. We talked about how to improve the design discipline. We just, we had a lot of initiatives going concurrently and we had incredible results, you know, and it wasn't just for design. It was like really imbuing this kind of idea of design throughout the company culture. Crushing it, I thought. And then one day I get to work and Carl Bass announces that he's going to step down. That was a shock to the system, but I didn't know that that was sort of the beginning of the end. And my boss was up for the job to become the CEO. He didn't get it. So he abruptly quits after he realizes he's not named new CEO. The new CEO, Andrew Agonost, becomes the CEO. And he was also, he was also at uh, Autodesk. And I felt like I had good relationship with him. I have deep respect for Andrew. He's sort of the business guy. Uh, Amar was the product guy. 
but it was a change of leadership. And what I'm telling you is something that happens to so many people in positions of power. Suddenly their champion leaves. And then some new leader can come in who doesn't believe in your mission at all, which was the case for me. It was sort of like, yeah, Maria, I like what you're doing, but you know what? I really don't think what you're doing is the priority of the company. Mm. I mean, he was very frank about it, but it was brutal, right? And I got pushed out, right? Or you could say I got laid off. You could say I left on my own. But at the end of the day, you are fired. You no longer have the job that you loved. Mm -hmm. And this happens over and over for people who are in high-level positions, it, but I didn't, you know, at that point I was crushed. I was oh, absolutely crushed. I was shocked. And then I went through all of these because, you know, I was like, hey, I'm a high performer. I, you know, I did everything right. And yet I no longer have a job that I love. And I went through the stages of grief and I didn't understand. It was like anger, sad, blame, shame, all of these emotions. And I felt really lost because like, holy shit, I no longer have a VP title. I suddenly no longer have a job. I no longer am in a position of power. I no longer making X number of dollars. Who am I if I don't have all these things, right? Again, these classic ladder questions. And I got really like sad and, and I, and I didn't understand it. And, you know, I've always been this overachiever type. So then I read this book called Transitions, and the author's last name is Gibson, Mm. Managing Life Through Stages of Transitions. I don't remember the exact title, but it's called Transitions. And I read this book, and it really helped me understand, oh, every transition starts with an ending. And even if you're, like, getting married, there's an ending of the life that you had stepping into this uncertain future of what your life could be. And whenever there's an ending, you it triggers stages of grief because it's about loss. That's why we have ceremonies around that stuff. That's why there's bachelor right. parties. And, you know, we right. kind of memorialize these moments and allow people to kind of somehow acknowledge that transition. You know, I always like yeah. to tell people, Superman just doesn't move from Clark Kent to Superman. He goes into the telephone booth there's something that's happening in that transition. And I think that's an important concept for folks to embrace and understand. And to recognize it's emotional and you're going to feel all the feelings and it's like grief. You can't like rush grief. You have to move through it. So you go through this period of loss and right. So, so that's the first step. And that's, I went through that period, right. Of like loss, confusion, the inner critic came up. Oh, you're too old to get a job. All of these things. Once you get through the stages of grief, like you get to sort of like ex- ref- like this place that I call like you get to acceptance, but it's like reflection. Mm-hmm. And I like to define it as if you are like lying in a coffin above ground, you are waiting to get reborn. You're waiting for your soul to rise. Your body is in a coffin. And you're just waiting for that moment where your soul will rise. And you could be in this like moment of reflection for a really long time. But it is so critically important to get to that place. Because when you get to that place, eventually you will get to this place which scientists call post-traumatic growth. 
Mm. And it's, it's actually, there's this moment of post-traumatic growth when your creativity kicks in high gear, when you can like make space for yourself and reflect, it is a moment where there's an intense amount of creativity and possibility that could be reborn because you come to this place of acceptance. It's like, okay, I accept this. Now what? You can fire your creativity and you can create these new signals of possibility, right? And then you, you're on to the next thing. And it's an incredible moment. And there's a lot of data that shows people who have had traumatic experience get to a place of post-traumatic growth where they are highly creative. So I read this book. It really inspired me. It gave me the context of reflection. And while I was in reflection, I started thinking, okay, what can I learn about this experience? Like, okay, I'm past all the emotions. I'm lying in the coffin. What did I do right? And what did I do wrong Mm. to lose this job? And I was like, you know what? This is like a new paradigm for leaders, design leaders. This place where, okay, coming back to Rise of the DEO, all right, we're at the seat at the table right now, but now what? Now, what are the skill sets? What are the things that we need to know to be impacting change at scale, redesigning change at scale? And I started uh, looking around and I made a list of people that who are in similar positions in companies. And this is where curiosity kicks in. I said, okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Let me get curious and interview all of these people and hear their story. How did they figure it out? Because like I didn't have a playbook. Nobody has a playbook when you're in that position of power. You kind of lean on your strengths and you find your way through the process. What if I unlock that for other people? What if other people don't have to go through what I went through? And what can I give back to the world? How can I share my experience in a way that's going to benefit others? Oh, and my partner, Christopher Ireland, she and I wrote Rise of the DEO together, and we have co-taught a bunch of things together. We're incredible like uh, collaborators here. So Together, we interviewed these people. We got incredible, rich stories of successes and failures and learnings. And then we spent the last couple of years putting this book together that we can now happily share with the world. And what I love about this book is it's not your typical like change management book where they tell you all the steps. And they tell you all these success stories about business cases. Now, these are snippets of real world experiences and they're sharing their vulnerabilities with mm. us. And that's, that's a gift. And that's why I'm so passionate about this book because I think it's really important. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And this is the next step for leaders. This is the next step. It's like, move, you know, as you step up and you are in positions of power and you're in a position where you can make culture change happen, this is the playbook that's going to help you get there. So incredible. And couldn't recommend it anymore. So hopefully listeners check it out and share. I'd love to hear how people are uh, learning from it. And um, I think there could be opportunity even to do a little something with the community at some point around kind of 
how are the tools and the concepts surfacing for them? So mm -hmm. maybe we'll have to come back to that once the book's out. We got time for another story. You had mentioned the Angela Long story, and mm -hmm. I, I thought it was really fascinating too, hearing about your points around you know the transitions and the this kind of post traumatic growth and having to be okay with the fact that you know we, we're not going to always be successful, but I mean, there mm -hmm. might be progress, there might be learning that you know it might still be beneficial to do the work we're doing, even though we don't get the outcome we were kind of anticipating. So, mm -hmm. love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, one of the things about designing for change, you are never done, and you will fail. Those are the two things you're going to need to know, okay? <laughs> that you're going to join a process. You're going to make progress. You will ultimately fail. A lot of these people who are in these positions of change, change makers, they go in knowing that it's going to be a short tenure, right? <laughs> and so it requires a lot of what John Maeda calls courage and audacity, Mm. Right. It takes a lot of courage to be in a position of change. And it, it means that you have to change your own internal point of view about what what it means to be successful. And it's not about accomplishing a goal. It's about making progress. It's about moving the goalpost forward so that the next change maker could take that goalpost and go further down the field. And so that's something to get used to is, is like, yeah, you are never going to be done. You're ultimately going to get fail. And then you're leaving the mark for somebody else. And so one of the people I interviewed in the book was named Angela Lang. And she's the executive director of Black Leaders Organizing for Communities in Wisconsin. And so her organization, it goes into neighborhoods, low propensity voters, people of color, and young people in particular, and they go into communities and build relationships with the local community so that they can be more informed and get out and vote and vote for the candidates that they believe are going to come into power to create change that they want to see in the world. And she's been doing this young, young leader, and she's done it for a couple of election cycles so far. And the thing about election cycles is the winners and losers are really clear. <laughs> it's At the end of the day, it's pretty binary. You're either going to be on the winning side or the losing side. And, you know, when you're on the winning side, great. But there's a, there's a lot of being on the losing side. And so you put your heart and soul into these election cycles. You give it everything you got. You put everything out on the floor. You know, you are passionate and persevering and you're getting through and you have to stay positive and you got to activate groups of people. It is a lot of energy to put out there in the world. And ultimately, there's going to be a judgment day where you've won or lost. I asked her about, God, that must be so hard. You know, put years and years of work and into an election cycle and then suddenly your, your guy or girl doesn't win. What is that like? That's where she said it's really about progress, that mm. we have to acknowledge that it's like, are you making progress? Are you doing coming back full circle? Are you doing the things that are meaningful and purpose and have purpose in your life? I, you know, she really believes in that she can help change the state of Wisconsin, which incidentally has an impact on changing the U.S., which then impacts the world. Right. 
And she's like, you know, a lot of this is about resilience, courage, and audacity, but also self-care. And, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself and making sure that you could be disappointed and you can go through the stages of grief. But eventually you're going to have to pick your pants back up and you're going to have to go out there because you got to do what you believe in. And it just inspired me greatly, this idea, this notion that failure is inevitable. And yet this very, very courageous woman is getting out there and the fight continues and the and just lean into the progress. Progress goes backward too, right? So it's not just about moving forward. In these election cycles, you, and you can see it in the world, there are cycles where you feel like you're taking leaps backwards. Mm-hmm. And that also you have to realize is part of the process, that progress is not always about moving forward. But you have to have the belief and resilience to keep pushing that goalpost, moving goalposts down the field. You know, I think that's a great thing for folks to keep in mind. And what a motivating story, because inside of an organization, we're not limited by these four-year election cycles, right? Like (laughs) things move a little bit faster than that. And (laughs) it reminds me of in the software development world, if we constrain our iteration cycle, so our testing loop, the tighter we make our testing loop, the more we can fail quickly and learn you know, in hardware nowadays, they can do more rapid prototyping with 3D printing or quick PCB boards, et cetera. And I think organizations have that luxury too. We don't necessarily switch out CEOs every year or every week, but there are certain cycles that we can lean into and learn more quickly. And, you know, people can do it on these four-year election cycles mm-hmm. and still have the courage to keep going. I think we can do it inside companies too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just remember, you know, it's like, you got to be persistent and be resilient and you got to believe in you believing that you're doing the right thing in service to others. Absolutely. And, you know, there is, a, I think, a tendency for folks to look elsewhere when some of these failures or challenges pop up. And, you know, I think sometimes that can be uh, more difficulty because the same challenges are going to be found everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a really making sure to dial in that, um, you know, the sensors and the um, signals that you're picking up on and making sure that, hey, is this just difficult because it's difficult? Or is there something really unworkable here? Because Mm -hmm. certainly in your story, Angela's not moving out of the country because they didn't get the results they wanted. So, you know, something to think about, like, because there could be a reason to stick around because of the social capital and all the successes you've already made and the learnings that you have. You're going to have to repeat all those somewhere else. Well, and then also she, she's a leader, so people Mm -hmm. need her, right? So she knows that the way she shows up and her modeling resilience and disappointment is going to help the change makers behind her that are, that are watching her and are learning from her. So unfortunately, we're getting to a point where we're going to have to end end, (laughs) and I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Mm. Yeah, I guess my final thought is kind of coming back to what I was saying in that we really need to be aware of our own humanity and how we show up and making sure that we are taking care of ourselves and showing up as our best selves when we're working with others. And it's okay to be, you know, put those inner critics, they're going to they're going to come, those inner critics are going to come and tell you you can't do something. 
They're going to tell you you're not enough. They're going to tell you you failed. You suck. You're going to hear all of the horrible things that that inner critic voice does. But keep in mind that the inner critic voice, its job is to prevent you from changing, is to prevent you from making the next move. It's about protecting you and keeping you in status quo. So check yourself and make sure that you, if the inner critic stick it in a closet so you can step into the light and be your best self and activate curiosity and possibility. When you go into that space, you are going to attract other people who want to do the same thing. So I think that's my final thought is that change really starts with you. And when you are in a good place, others will follow you. Love that. And Maria, happy to step into the light with you anytime. It's been a total pleasure and hope the listeners check out the book and enjoy it as much as I do. Also, we'll have to figure out a way to collaborate again sometime soon. Well, I definitely want to come to your conference at yes. some point. You know, so I, I, it's been on my radar for a very long time. I learned about it in the pandemic and I go, oh, I want to go to this conference. And so hopefully the stars will align and I will be able to join you in the real world one day. Yes, that would be lovely. Again, thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com